Turn in your Bibles now to 1 John chapter number 3. And uh, we just have too much fun at church, amen? Don't let the other Baptists know about it. They'll get upset. But we're just going to go ahead and keep enjoying the Lord. 1 John chapter 3. Uh, I'm going to do something I never do. I'm going to preach something that I've preached before. I preached on Friday these thoughts to our seniors' ministry. And uh, if there's a group you're going to preach to twice, the seniors are a pretty good group to preach to twice. Um, because <laughs> I didn't even say nothing. I've not said anything. I ain't even said nothing. See, you think what I'm going to say is because between them that can't remember and them that didn't even hear you, it'll all be fresh and new to them anyway. That's what you thought I was going to say. What I was really going to say is because they're spiritual enough to get something out of it twice. Amen. So shame on you all for thinking that way. First John chapter number three. And I'd like to just read the first three verses of this chapter. First John chapter three, verse number one. The Bible says, behold, what manner of love the father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore, the world knoweth us not because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. Let's pray together. Father, we love you tonight. What a blessing to get to be in this place. My heart has already been warmed and encouraged by the fellowship that I've had, the songs that have been sung, Lord, the worship that we've enjoyed already. But Lord, as we turn our attention to the Word of God, which is our purpose in being here, that your heart, that your Word might do a work in our hearts and that we might respond in obedience unto you, I pray that we would not allow this moment to pass from us before we've availed ourselves of this opportunity. So I pray that you'd help us to have open hearts to the truth of the Word of God and may we give you glory through our obedience. We'll be sure to thank you for it. Lord, we love you. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I've often said when you study the Word of God that uh, context is king. And what I mean by that is that if you don't know the Bible in context, you really don't know the Bible. You might know some biblical things, you might know some things out of the Bible, but you don't really know the Bible if you don't know the Bible in context. Now, one of the great tragedies, I think, in the modern pulpit is that there's so little Bible preaching. And I don't mean that the things that are preached are unbiblical. But I just mean that there is no preaching of the Bible itself to take us to the Word of God and to say this is who pinned it down, who it was being written to, what it's being written about. And, of course, application can grow out of that, and it should grow out of that. Uh, But if we don't know the Bible in context, we really don't know the Bible at all. And uh, a lot of Christian biblical education and concept is really nothing more than the memorization of catechisms like the Catholics do, where you just memorize uh, sort of potpourri of biblical truths. But I believe the Word of God needs to be taught to us in in the context, in, in, in an organic way, where we understand exactly what's transpiring in the text. And so when you study the book of 1 John, you'll find that John is primarily uh, tasked with with combating a heresy that was very prevalent in the early New Testament church, and the historical name for it is Gnosticism. 
Now, to try to really nail down what Gnosticism was, you're going to have to have a pretty uh, wide net that you cast because it was not necessarily a centralized movement that was identified with a singular leader. It's not like they necessarily had a Gnostic college that was churning out Gnostic preacher boys. But rather, it was sort of a philosophy of speculative theology. You say, preacher, what does that mean? Well, a little bit of what we was preaching about this morning. We was talking about relegating the Word of God to just being something that we sort of become conscious source of, and uh, they viewed it as merely an academic pursuit, as an intellectual pursuit to read the Word of God. Uh, There's a reason that people tend to like to be that way and behave that way, and that's because it gives free reign to their flesh to live any way that they want to live. And so John addresses this heresy of Gnosticism. And there were a few sort of ideas that were at the forefront of this movement. Uh, One of the things that they believed is they denied the deity of Christ. They tried to disassociate the person of Christ uh, from uh, the person Christ Jesus. And they would have claimed that uh, Jesus was just a normal human being, just a man, and that uh, the spirit uh, that was Christ descended upon him at his baptism and then departed from him before he died. And in doing so, they sort of surgically separated uh, the person of Jesus Christ from His deity. Now, let me just say, and I know it don't even have to be said on a Sunday night here at Wall Ridge, but I'm just going to say it anyway because I enjoy it. I believe Jesus was and is 100% God and 100% man. Hey, there's there's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He is God in the flesh. Uh, there is no question about that. And so the Gnostics, they sort of denigrated and denied and debase the deity of Jesus Christ. Another thing that they believed was that sin was a relative or situational ideal. In other words, it's not that they denied that people did things that the Bible demarcates as sin, but what they believed was that uh, if they, they were enlightened enough that they transcended the ability to sin, and here's how they would have said it. Well, yeah, you know, uh, it, for, for you it might be sin to lie, but it's not sin for us because we're too spiritual to sin. They would have said, well, yeah, it might be sin for you to commit adultery, but it's not sin for us because we're transcendent and we're enlightened and we're beyond that. You know, that that same poison is still going on today. Uh, people say, well, you know, what's right for you and what's right for me? And uh, you you just do you. You live your life however you want to. You know, the Bible tells us what right and wrong is. It clearly denotes what is sin and what is righteousness. And so John's part of the reason that John says, if any man say he hath no sin, he lies and does not the truth. He says the truth is not in him. A man can say he's never sinned, but he just deceives himself. Uh, don't change the facts surrounding his life. And so uh, one of the things they uh, did was deny the deity of Christ. Another is they redefined sin to make it abstract and to make it something that wasn't really applicable to a person's life. But then another thing they believed was that they had an extra-scriptural revelation that initiated them into a higher concept of, of Christianity. Uh, the term Gnostics, and in fact, you can hear it. If, uh, we talked this morning about somebody saying they are an agnostic, typically in, in grammar. Now, I'm not the person to be talking about grammar, but... Uh, If you add the letter A to something, it negates it. Uh, And so, uh, for instance, a person that is an atheist is a person that is the opposite of a theist. Well, an agnostic is someone that claims they have no knowledge of God. They would say, well, maybe he exists, maybe he doesn't, but I don't know whether that's true or not. I don't claim to have a knowledge of that. Well, these were not agnostics. These were Gnostics. The Gnostic claimed they had a special knowledge of who God was. And that's the reason that John writes to him and says, you have no need that any man teach 
teach you. That self-same anointing will teach you. He's not saying it's wrong for a person to teach the Word of God or for us to learn from people teaching the Word of God. But in the context of 1 John, he's talking about an extra scriptural revelation. Here's what he's saying. Everything you need is in that Bible. Uh, there ain't some that have a special dose than others. We have everything we need in the Word of God. And it is really through that, that with that in mind, that I believe John pins down these words. Because here's what happened. They had convinced, they had duped and deceived this little group of believers into believing that they somehow had a second-class Christianity. Man, I'm glad, listen, I'm glad when he took all of me that I got all of him. I'm not on the payment plan. I'm not on probation. I'm as saved as any man has ever been saved. Man, I'm thankful I got all of him. And he's wanting to sort of bolster the, 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 the hearts of these believers and remind them of what a precious thing it is to be a child of God. In doing this, we find that John, almost in machine gun manner, rapid fire, he uses three words that all start with the letter B. And they all convey certain thoughts. Uh, he says in uh, the very first verse, Behold what manner of love. Then he goes on to further describe that love when he says that the Father hath bestowed upon us. He goes on to describe in verse 2, he says, Beloved, now are we the sons of God. I want to preach to you on this thought tonight. He's describing the blessed state of the believer in Christ Jesus. And I believe we could say it this way. We find in this uh, passage the Beatitudes of 1 John. You remember our Lord on the Sermon on the Mount. He, he gave the Beatitudes. Blessed are these, blessed are those, blessed are these, blessed are those. Well, here's what John's doing. He's looking retrospectively at the blessed condition of the believer. And he's saying, man, listen, we are a blessed people in the Lord. We shouldn't hang our heads about the salvation that we've got. Uh, we ought to wrap ourselves in it and gain comfort and encouragement and strength from it. And so with that in mind, he deals with three things uh, that are so blessed about our salvation. Let me say number one tonight. The first thing that we see is in that very first phrase. And listen to how he says it. Behold what manner of love. The first thing we see is love beheld in our text. When we speak about, uh, use the word behold, we're asking someone to observe something, to recognize something. Uh, the word contains the idea of studiously observing it. In other words, not just a casual glance, but to fix your gaze upon it and to study it carefully and considerately and consciously. And here's what he says. Hey, before we get to anything else, just stop for a moment and think about how much God loves you. I like the way he says it. He says, what manner of love? He does not say what measure of love. He says what manner of love. Hey, listen, I'm blessed by the measure of love, but I'm a lot more blessed by the manner of love. There are some people that they love you a bunch, they just don't love you very deep. I've known people in my life that they enjoyed my company, they enjoyed being around me. It seemed as though, and this is really most people, if I'm to be frank. That's when you're supposed to laugh. But when it really came down to the, to the hard thing of being a friend and putting others above themselves, they loved me a lot. They just didn't love me deeply. Uh, they loved me superficially to no end, but they didn't love me very deeply. I'm glad it's not just the measure of his love, it's the manner of his love. He don't just love us a lot, he loves us deeply. And Calvary proves that. Notice in uh, this thought that we could say four things about the love of God and the manner of it in our lives. Let me say number one tonight, it is an undesired love. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, He loved us even when we didn't love Him. 
Uh, John would go on to tell us that we love Him because He first loved us. And you know the blessed thing about the love of God is that it was not when we were His friends, it was not when we were His advocates, it was not when we were His acolytes, it was not uh, when we were uh, His fans, but rather it was when we were His enemies that He died for us. Romans chapter 5 says it this way in verse number 6, For when we were yet without strength, uh, you, you know, uh, uh, probably a good East Tennessee hillbilly way of saying that is, is when we wasn't worth shooting. <laughs> when you were yet without strength, when you weren't even worth shooting, man, when you couldn't help yourself, when you couldn't do nothing to, to renovate yourself or to transform yourself or to make yourself better, when there was nothing that was redeemable within you, He redeemed you anyway. When we were yet without strength, it says in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. And then Paul, as if arrested by this thought, he goes on to describe what an unusual, peculiar, proprietary love that God showed us. He says, for scarcely, for a righteous man will one die. In other words, he said, you find somebody out there that is righteous, that lives righteously, that their life proves to be for the betterment of society, for the blessing of other people, and even then it's going to be rare you're going to find somebody that'd be willing to lay down their life so that others might benefit from their righteousness. Then he goes a little further and says, yet peradventure. That's good King James Bible word for maybe. Perhaps. Peradventure. In other words, it is thinkable, maybe, possibly. Yet peradventure. For a good man, some would even dare to die. He says not just a righteous man, but even a man that is good. There's probably, it's imaginable there's someone out there that would die for them. But then he says this, verse 8, but God. But God commendeth His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Paul says God loved, and we'll get to this here in a moment, but God loved us in a way that nobody else would love us. Uh, We were not uh, valuable in the eyes of the world. We were not uh, beneficial even in the economy of God. There was nothing about us that was was good, nothing about us that helped Him. Hey, the book of Isaiah says it this way, that our attempts at righteousness were as filthy rags. And I just remind you again, as I've done so often, He ain't talking about your uh, worst 30 seconds. He's talking about your best 30 seconds. The best part of your life was as filthy rags. But He died for us anyway. It was an undesired love. And that's part of the reason that the notion of uh, our salvation being predicated upon our good works or our promises to God is so outlandish. Because the truth is, before you ever made God a promise, He died for you. Before you ever did a good thing, Christ died for you. Before you ever even made a move towards Him, Christ died for you. It was an undesired love. Let me say number two tonight, it was an undeserved love. Time would fail us if we wanted to read every verse that conveys this thought. But the one that often comes to my mind when I think about how undeserving I am of the love of God is Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works. The Holy Ghost knows how man is. Man's going to try to find some way to stick works in there. So he says, not of works, not of works, not of works. Uh, We need to get that through our head. Not of works lest any man should boast. In other words, if it be of grace, Paul says in the book of Romans, if it be of grace, it is no more of works. If it be of works, it is no more of grace. Think about how absurd the notion is that God will save you by grace if you'll just get to Him by works in the first place. Uh, Would that not be the earning of our salvation where we'd have to get to Him through good works for Him to take us the rest of the way through grace? 
a lot of the church of God crowd and a lot of the crowd that believes in work salvation, they would say to you, well, we, we believe in the grace of God. We're not denying the grace of God, but you got to do your part. No, they got it wrong. Hey, God saved me when I couldn't do no part. God saved me when there was nothing I could do. I will tell you this, that if good works is going to get us there, none of us would get there in the first place. For we are altogether unrighteous. Uh, we are altogether lost. Our mouth is an open sepulcher. We're undeserving in every way, shape, fashion, and form. And I'll just tell you this. It better be by grace because none of us could get there on our own in any way. It's an undeserved love. And there's nothing you could do to deserve the love of God. Uh, really, it's funny when you think about the concept of earning God's love and you think about the lofty character of the love of God, how how invincible it is, how impenetrable it is, uh, how pure and how precious it is. Why would we ever think anything we could do could gain that love and that we could boast in it? And the reason men seek to claim some uh, earning, some worth regarding the love of God is for the purpose that they might boast. Funny thing about it, the reason that God saved you by grace was explicitly so you could not boast. It's an undeserved love. Not only that, it's an undeterred love. You say, what do you mean, preacher? Why? I love what it says in Hebrews 12 too. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, and I like this next phrase, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Can I tell you, it was not easy for him to love us. We all got quiet like you believe it was. It was not easy for him to love us. And I don't just mean because we're altogether unlovely, and that is true. But I mean because the love that he showed towards us, or as Paul said it in Romans chapter number 5, that he commendeth towards us, it came at a great cost and a great price. What we find is this, that the love of Christ outlasted the, the maliciousness the rage, the hatred of man. The love of God outlasted the failures of our life. The love of God outlasted the stubbornness and willfulness and fleshliness of our life. That the love of God and the love of Christ outlasted all of the vehement hate that mankind could pour upon Him. We find this, that the love of God was unthwarted in the purposes of God. You remember what it says about the disciples? That He loved His own to the end. In other words, when it was all said and done, you say, preacher, but Peter denied him, but he still loved him. You say, but, but preacher, they failed him, they forsook him, they fled from him. Yeah, just like you have, just like I have. But he loved him anyway. It was an undeterred love. But then I would say this, it was an unduplicated love. I'd take you to John fifteen thirteen. I was telling them on Friday, I grew up in a Christian school, and nobody's as carnal as Christian school kids. And... Um, <laughs> and growing up in Christian school, you know, we had yearbooks every year. And uh, it, every year, the seniors would have to give their life verse. And uh, when they would give their life verse, there was always a few verses you knew they was going to make the cut. And uh, now, listen, don't misunderstand me. These are all precious verses. And some of these may be your life verse. And there's nothing wrong with that because I trust that you came to it through careful study of the Word of God and, and a tender, sincere heart. But for most of us, when we were in school, we picked those verses because they're the only verses we knew. <laughs> and so there's always a handful that were in there. You know, Philippians 4.19 would be in there. And uh, that you always, the, there'd be somebody pick John 3.16. You might as well just make your life verse just a little quote that says, I don't know the Bible, you know, because there's nothing else they could pick. I mean, they just, they didn't know what else. And one of the ones that invariably would always be in there would be John 15.13. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. 
And oftentimes that verse has been equated with the love of Christ for us. But can I remind you that this is not the love of God for us. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. But let me ask you something. Was you his friend when he laid down his life for you? Hey, we were the enemies of God when we were reconciled unto Him. And here we find that the intended purpose of this verse is actually the opposite. It's not that we might look in this verse and see the love of God, but it's that we might look in this verse and see how different and how unique and how proprietary is the love of God. The greatest love that a man can have is to lay down his life for those that love him, for those that care about him, for those that would do the same for him. But God did something altogether different. He died for those that did not love Him. He died for those that hated Him. He he died for those that despised Him. Hey, He still had the spit rolling down His face. And He died for those that had spit upon Him. He died for men whose hands still clutched the hairs of His beard. He died for those whose hands still were bruised from where they had buffeted Him. And there on the cross He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It's an unduplicated love. Ain't nobody ever loved you like God loves you. Nobody's ever going to love you the way that God loves you. I'll go ahead and tell you, it'll save you a lot of disappointment in people if you'll go ahead and recognize now that nobody's ever going to love you the way that God loves you. And that's okay, because you don't need anybody to be God in your life but God. It's an unduplicated love. So here we see love beheld. Then notice number two, we see this thought, life bestowed. He says this, behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. Man, I love that phrase. That we should be called the sons of God. Therefore, the world knoweth us not, because it knew Him not. So it's not merely uh, that the love of God is an abstract concept floating somewhere out in the ether of philosophy. But rather, it's that this love that God showed us took action and initiative in our life and changed us and produced new life within us. Now, how did it do that? Well, I, I, I told you, I love that phrase, bestowed. The Father hath bestowed upon us. The word bestow, here's what it does. It robs all glory from the recipient. It's not something that He paid us. It's something He bestowed upon us. When you bestow something, all the glory and all the honor is placed upon the giver and the gift, but not on the recipient. The idea is that the recipient didn't do anything to earn it or to procure it, but that it was merely placed upon them. Now, somebody's going to say, well, now, wait a minute, preacher. Are you telling me that a person has no part in it? No, of course a person has to come to Christ and receive Him as Savior. And no less than John himself said as much in John chapter number 1. But listen, we have the other side of the coin in John chapter 1. And both of these phrases understood together give us in clear relief the uh, truth about what happened when you got born again. John chapter number 1 verse 11 says it this way, He came unto His own and His own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. In other words, I'd say it this way. We see a great ministration in this verse of the life of God towards us. Does God force that life upon anyone? No, he does not. We have to come to Him. We have to receive Him. But if we receive Him, He'll receive us. And He'll bestow upon us the power to become the sons of God. In other words, the way I got in was through His grace and through His gift 
and through His glory. He gave to me the means of salvation. I had to be willing to receive it, of course, because a gift is of no effect and of no force if a person won't receive it. But that makes it no less of a gift that I was willing to receive it. That's nothing for me to boast in in and of myself. That's something for me to boast in the giver and the gift and not in myself. Uh, we see this great ministration. I love the way the Bible says that anybody that ever got in, it's because God brought them in. Now, they had to be willing to be brought in. Uh, they had to come to Him. They had to be willing to receive Him. They didn't do it through their own works. Uh, they did it through their own willingness to be saved by Him. But He's the one that brought them in. We see a great ministration. Then I would say, number two, we see a great elevation. The Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. The word we is emphatic in this verse that we, we, (laughs) that you, that me should be called the sons of God. One of my favorite gospel songs, The Comforter Has Come, has a line in it that I always think of when I read this passage of Scripture. The songwriter said that I, a child of hell, should in his image shine. Now, what an amazing thing that you who deserved every bit of hell have been instead given every bit of God and every bit of Christ. And now we are no longer sons of the devil. We're no longer uh, the sons of fallen Adam. But now we've been birthed into the family of God. We have a new lineage. We have a new family. We have a new bloodline. And we have a new heritage and inheritance that we should be called the sons of God. Why is John writing this, by the way? Because there was a group of people that were saying, well, yeah, you've been saved, but that's all. And, you know, if you're not careful, you'll start to get that attitude about your salvation. Well, I've been saved, but that's all. Yep, that's all of it. I've been saved, but that's all. Yeah, that's everything. Now, it doesn't suggest there's not growth beyond it. It doesn't suggest that God does not desire for us to to grow in, in our development, our, our the person of Christ in our personality and in our walk. But it does mean this, that when you got born again, you didn't get some second class thing. You became a full-fledged, bona fide, born-again child of God. Fellow heirs with Jesus Christ. Join heirs with Him. John says, you don't have to hang your head down about nothing. You don't have to feel as though because you've not experienced what somebody else has experienced, because you've not gone where they've gone, because you've not seen what they've seen, because you've not done what they've done, that somehow you're second class. No, if you've been born again, you're a child of God and God in glory. Uh, There may be times that he's embarrassed at the way that you and I live, but he's not embarrassed that we're his child. Uh, He's dealt with that at Calvary. And he is willing to declare uh, the name of the Lord in the congregation and to call us his brethren. He's not ashamed to call us brethren. Man, we see this great elevation, but then we see a great transformation. I like what he says here. Therefore, in light of that, because we're not what we used to be, because we got born again and because now we're a a son of God, because life has been bestowed upon us, because the love of God has been manifest in us and to us, therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. The language here conveys the idea of that which is alien in nature. I told him on Friday, when I say alien, I don't mean little green men, but the way the world reacts, uh, they would react less odd towards little green men than they would to a person that's a born-again Christian on fire for God. Uh, the uh, idea here is that they did not understand Christ. 
they knew him not. And it does not mean that they didn't know to some degree who he was. It doesn't mean they didn't know his name. It doesn't mean they didn't know his history. But the same way that uh, we're told in uh, John chapter number 1 verse 11, he came unto his own and his own received him not. What it means is they didn't understand him. When Christ walked amongst men, he was puzzling to them. They had never seen love this raw, unmitigated, and unvarnished. They had never seen truth this bold, this blunt, and this brazen. They had never seen someone. I, you know, I think it's lost on us sometime. When you read in the gospel and it talks about, they say things like, never a man spake like this man. Uh, when you went to the synagogue to hear rabbinical teaching, both then and now, you wouldn't go and hear a bunch of answers. All you'd hear is a bunch of questions. A bunch of pontificating on this point and that point, and this rabbi said this, and that rabbi said that, and... Really, it didn't have anything to do with providing answers. It had to do with well, with uh, procuring more questions that would, uh, you know, sort of uh, tickle the mind and, and stimulate conversation. And then here comes Jesus walking in just telling people truth. And they didn't understand how to take that. He spoke with authority. And it doesn't mean that he jerked a knot in them, although every now and then he did. But what it means is when he spoke, he didn't say, well, maybe this and well, maybe that and well, maybe this. He spoke bold, blunt, plain truth about who God was, what right was, what wrong was, and what was expected of them. They didn't know what to do with Him. We have this same sort of concept whenever Paul goes to Mars Hill and there with the Epicureans and the Stoics who love nothing more than to hear some new thing. He stands up and boldly declares Jesus in the resurrection. And they don't understand this idea. They think truth is like a ping pong ball or a badminton bird to be batted about to each other. And they don't understand that when God gets a hold of it, it's a heat-seeking missile directed at your heart. And Paul stands up and he, you know, he says, I, you know, I fear that you're too superstitious. And he walks along that row of pagan gods and he says, you're worshiping this one and this one and this one and this one. He said, but when I beheld your devotions, I saw this altar down here that says to the unknown God, he says, that's the God that I want to preach to you. He begins to preach to him about Jesus and the resurrection. They didn't know how to take that. Can I tell you, this world is just as dumbfounded by truth today as ever it has been. Now, here's what happened when you got born again. The truth took up residence, changed its mailing address to your heart and your life. And now what's happened is we've been transformed. We have, we should anyways, a life of purpose, distinct, deliberate, that is lived to the glory of God and lived with the manifestation of the person of Christ as its purpose. And now all of a sudden we're a different person than we used to be. And I'll just tell you this. Some of y'all have experienced this, especially some of y'all that maybe got saved a little later in life and you had friends and you had a life and you had those things that uh, you lived in that reprobate world and then you got born again. And all of a sudden your friends didn't know what to do with you. Uh, They didn't know how to respond to you. They didn't know what to say to you. They didn't know how to interact. What happened? Well, this alien love of God, so different, so unique, so unidentifiable, had taken up residence in your life. And now all of a sudden, they didn't know what to say about it or what to do about it. The love of God and the life of God is something so unique and proprietary to this world, it cannot fathom it. It cannot fathom the notion of a life that is birthed from death. It cannot uh, gain a concept and an understanding that a love uh, that does not have to be requited, but is in fact has its merit and its value and its beauty in the fact that often it is unrequited, that He loves us even when we don't love Him back. This is something so foreign to this world, and yet it's to be the life of the believer and the way that we live and the way that we 
conduct ourselves. You say, what happened, preacher? God saved you and changed your life. It ought to be that the world can see that in the way that we live. So we see love beheld and we see life bestowed. And finally, and I'll be done tonight, look at verse 2. He says, beloved, beloved. Uh, Isn't that a precious word that he uses, especially to a group of people that are being told they they ain't good enough in the eyes of God? He says, hey, beloved, now are we the sons of God. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. We could call this the looking for of the beloved, or maybe you'd like this better, the looking for of the blessed hope. In other words, he's reminding us of what our prospects and what our future is. Hey, listen, I, I get a little discouraged in this world. I know you don't. Sometimes I do. Sometimes, man, it just, you, you know, you look around at a world that's just burning down around you all the time. And it always looks like evil's winning. And you can kind of get a little bit down in the mouth about what God's doing in your life. We need to be reminded that this that we're going through, man, this is the worst that we've got to go through. Things don't get worse. Hey, things are only looking up. Notice what he says here. Number one, he speaks about our position. He says, beloved, now are we the sons of God. Now, he's going to go on to temper this with a statement in, in, in the next phrase. But just for the moment, let's just note this, that uh, no matter what this world does and what this world levels at us, we need to be reminded that the ultimate victory has already been won in the person of Christ Jesus. I'll help you a little bit tonight if you'll let me help you. If you spend all your time looking at all the victories the devil's winning, you'll forget that the Lord has won the ultimate victory. If you look at all the wickedness around you and and spend all your time drinking in all that noise and poison, you'll get it in your head that we're on the losing side of this thing. But John says, don't ever forget, the great victory has already been won, and now we are the sons of God. We see our position here, but then... He sort of, and, and John liked to do this. I don't, me and John, we have some problems sometimes. I, some, I, because sometimes the way, he, he, here's what he'll do, right? He'll, he'll strap a rocket to your back and shoot you up into the stratosphere of glory. And you'll be ready to shout and run. And then right about the time you get some momentum, he'll grab hold of your ankle and drag you back down to real life. Look what he says. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. Glory! And it doth not yet appear <laughs> what we shall be. He says, now wait a minute, before you grab that flag and take a lap around the church, let me remind you that though it's true that our position is settled, uh, that our practical and our present is still something that is very much not what God desires it to be and not what we should desire for it to be. I love the Word of God because it tells you the truth. It doesn't try to make you believe you're something you're not. It tells you what you are in the eyes of God, but then it reminds you of what you are in the eyes of yourself and in the eyes of others. And here's the reality. It doth not yet appear what we shall be. I'm glad I'm not what I used to be, but I do recognize that I'm not what I ought to be either yet. Uh, I think that's okay to say. Paul, he he said that. He he said, not that I uh, had already, uh, you know, uh, arrived, not that I've apprehended, uh, not as though I were already perfect, but he said, I follow after. He says, I'm not what I'm going to be one day, and I recognize that. I think it's important for our theology, but listen, it's also important for our encouragement to be reminded that God's not surprised that we still struggle with our flesh. 
doesn't mean we ought to capitulate to our flesh. doesn't mean we ought to just wave the white flag and say, all right, well, I'm going to live carnal and wicked because i got flesh within me. But it does mean that we can recognize that that struggle is a reality to live for the Lord, to be pleasing unto Him. It's not just a reality for you or for me, but it's a reality for all those that know the Lord, have been born again, and are endeavoring to see Him get glory out of their life. Also, by the way, let's just go ahead and make this theological note. There's probably no more clear, crystallized example in Scripture of the difference between your position and your practical state than right here in this text. tells me this, that there is a difference between the way God positionally sees us and often the way that we are practically living and existing. By the way, this has to do with every aspect of salvation. Hey, listen, I'm justified in the eyes of God. But my life is not always very justified in the way that I'm living. I'm sanctified in Christ Jesus. I'm, I'm, I'm pure, I'm clean, I'm washed. But oftentimes my life is not very sanctified. You say, preacher, what, what, what does that mean? Well, there's going to come a day. Paul said it this way in Philippians chapter 4. Our vile body will be made like unto his glorious body. John says it this way in our very text. He says, we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. In other words, one of these days, my practical is going to meet with my positional, and they're both going to become one in Christ Jesus. When this old body, this vile body, is made like unto his glorious body. Until that day comes, I'm still going to struggle in the present. You're going to struggle in the present. He speaks about our position and our present. But I like this. He then talks about our prospect. But we know. Not some folks say, but we know. <laughs> not, not, not I heard someone say one time, but he says, but we know. We know that when he shall appear, and by the way, what he's taught, he ain't even, he's not even interested in disputing and debating about the imminent return of Jesus Christ. He don't even, that's not even the substance of what he's talking about here. He just says it, he's, but we know that not, but we know that hopefully he'll appear. That's not what he says. He does not even just say, but we know that he will appear. He says, but we know that when he shall appear. It's not even up for debate for John, man. Hey, listen, John had been uh, had heard the voice. He had heard the trumpet. He had been caught up in a vision. He had seen uh, the heaven of heavens. He knew that Jesus was coming back. And he says, we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Paul dealt with this truth in uh, 2 Corinthians when he talked about beholding the glory of God and being transformed into that glory. And there is a spiritual truth that regards our beholding of the truth of the Word of God, that the more we behold the glory of God in Scripture, the more that that glory is is transfixed in our visage, in our countenance, in our personage. All that is sourced back in what happened with Moses when he saw God on the mountain, when he saw the backside of God. And the Bible says that the glory of God was was sort of bestowed upon him for the rest of his days. He had to wear a veil because his face shined with the glory of God. Paul uses that to basically communicate communicate the idea that inasmuch as God was communicating His glory in the law, how much more is He doing it now in grace through the inspired Word of God, through the person of Jesus Christ? John speaks of it this way. He just says, we'll see Him as He is. And when we see Him as He is, we're going to become like Him. We're going to be like Him. In other words, hey, uh, we've got some good prospects. I don't know what your future may hold. If it's like most people, it'll probably hold some heartache and some headache. I, I, I keep thinking one of these years I'm going to have a year that's worry-free. But it ain't happening. It's just getting worse. Uh, I was talking to someone the other day, and I remember reading this a while back. And you know, you read things sometimes, and they just they don't resonate with you. 
But I remember reading a thing that said that life is like old video games. Now, some of y'all ain't even old enough, ain't even young enough for old video games yet. I know that. That's okay. But said life is like old video games. Said you don't really win. It just goes faster and harder till you die. <laughs> and you didn't ever beat Galactica. It just it just kept speeding at you till it got to be too much. I'm starting to feel like life works that way too. You know. Uh, we're not going to have a worry-free life. I understand that. I'm not saying you're not going to have heartache and hardship. But I'm saying when it's all done, it all gets better. When it's all over with, hey, we're not wondering and worrying about what eternity holds. Not if we've been born again. We recognize that the things that we face are the worst of what we'll face. There's coming a day that we're going to be like Him because we're going to see Him like He is. He speaks of our position, our present, our prospect, and then I'll be done tonight with my introduction. He speaks of our purity, verse 3. And every man that hath this hope, hath this hope in him, purifieth himself, even as he is pure. I oftentimes like to read a verse in the way we want it to read and then remind us what it actually says. Because here's how we would write it. Every man that hath this hope in him ought to purify himself. But I'm sorry, John don't give you any quarter on this issue. He says, if you have this hope in you, if you recognize this, if you realize this, if this lives and dwells and stands in the forefront of your mind, here's what it's going to do. It's going to purify your life. Uh, Paul was the perfect example of this. We've already sort of spoken about it. But in Philippians chapter number 3, when he, when he talked about, when he said, uh, you know, I, I've not yet attained, I'm not already perfect. But then he said this, but I follow after. If that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended. What did he mean when he said that? You know, occasionally it helps us to think about the Bible. What did he mean when he said that? If that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended. Well, what was the for which he was apprehended for? Well, he's already told us that those that have believed on the Lord are uh, predestined to be conformed to the image of God's dear Son. I'll tell you what your destiny is if you're born again. Your destiny is one day you're going to be like him for you're going to see him as he is. One of these days, your vile body is going to be made like unto His glorious body. One of these days, you're going to be like Jesus. That's why God saved you. He wasn't sitting around in heaven bored with nothing to do. He saved you to make you like Jesus. Now, here's what Paul said, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended. We could maybe say it this way. Paul says, one of these days, I'm going to be like Him, but I'm not going to wait till then to try to be like Him. We could also say it this way. Paul says, I'm trying to grab hold of that which has grabbed hold of me. God saved me to make me like Jesus, and I've made that my grand purpose and aspiration and ambition in life. And he says, my goal and desire is not to live as carnal as I can and let the, the resurrection catch me up one day. He said, God forbid, what a shameful way for a Christian to live. He said, instead, I'm trying to meet God where He's trying to get me in the first place. Oftentimes we go to a store, me and my wife, and we'll have to go different directions because she does the serious work of buying things and I piddle around and look at stuff. And But we'll say, hey, I, I, that we'll be going through the Walmart. And she'll say, well, I'm going to go this way. I'm going to go this way. I say, I'll meet you in the fishing equipment, right? And what I'll do, we'll pick something that is in a common direction of where we're both going so that we can both be heading in the same direction and wind up there at the same time in the same place. I'll go ahead and just save you the trouble and recognize that we're never going to be sinless and perfect on this side of glory. But I also don't want to be filthy and carnal when I meet the Lord. I want to be heading in the same direction. I want to meet Him in the fishing section. Amen. 
I want to be headed where He wants me to be. And I want my life to be tracking in the right direction and in the way that He wants me to live. If we really believe this, we're going to be pure. Uh, the notion that uh, belief in the eternal security of the believer, salvation holy by grace, or the imminent return of Jesus Christ, the idea that any of those doctrines produce a cavalier and careless lifestyle is promulgated by people that don't really believe in them. Because people that really believe in them know it don't produce carelessness. It produces consecration. Hey, listen, if I, if I know I can't lose my salvation, I'm not spending all my time trying to barely stay qualified. I've got, I've got the energy to move forward and see God do great things in my life. Hey, if I know I'm not trying to work my way to get there and I know He's already got me there, then I'm going to try to walk worthy of the vocation wherewith I am called. And if I know Jesus is coming back soon, that's not going to produce some kind of theological escapism in my life where I'm going to say, well, who cares Jesus is coming soon? No. What that's going to do is make me say, I want to live ready because He could come at any moment. I like it the way one preacher said it. He said, if you're going to do anything for Jesus, you better hurry up because He's coming soon. And it'll produce an urgency in us. We ain't got no second class Christianity. We ought to live up to what God's done in our life and press forward for His glory. Let's bow together tonight as a musician comes to play. I want to give you an opportunity, if God touched your heart about some area of your life, to meet Him in this altar, to let Him have His will and way in your life. Whatever it is He dealt with you about, you can just meet Him down here. Be honest with Him. Open your heart to Him. And say, now, Lord, agree with Him. That's what it means to confess, to agree with Him about it. And let him have his will and way in your heart. Lord, we love you. We thank you for what you have done. We'll do. Bless this invitation. We ask it in Jesus' name.